Today's show is sponsored in part by NetRounds. NetRounds software performs active testing and monitoring to ensure your business-critical applications and services are running as expected. Get real-time insights for testing, troubleshooting, and SLA monitoring. Find out more at netrounds.com slash packetpushers. Somewhere in your network, there's at least one exploitable vulnerability. Maybe it's a really bad one. Maybe it's not that bad. Do you know what the vulnerability is? Do you have a way to explain to the business the risk that it represents? Do you have a strategy to fix it? Climb aboard with the Data Knots as we fly the good ship vulnerability management to planet security on today's episode. I am Ethan Banks, and with me is Chris Wall. We joined my networking transporter with his virtualization rocket to make a spaceship exploring the ever-changing infrastructure universe together as the Datanauts. Since 2015, Datanauts has been part of the Packet Pushers network of podcasts for information technology professionals, and you can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. Our guest today to talk about vulnerability management is Zoe Rose. Zoe, welcome to Datanauts. Who are you and what do you do? Hello, hello. Uh, who am I? Hmm. See, that's a really hard question to answer because, in my opinion, I am an overly obsessed ferret mom. But in the professional world, I'm actually a cybersecurity something. I guess I've been referred to as a uh, ethical hacker. I've also been referred to as a consultant. So somewhere in between there is where I lie. I also one day dream of being a narrator. So that's a description that <laughs> covers me. Well, for, uh, we didn't mean to introduce an existential crisis first thing in the show, Zoe. So <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Data Nuts. Thank you for having me. I do like the introduction of ferrets within the first eight seconds of your intro. So you definitely achieved one of your goals that we talked about offline. I told you, it just happens. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, now, Ethan was mentioning a little bit earlier, you know, with uh, heading to planet security and whatnot around vulnerabilities. And I just think maybe it's best to start with the basics, right? What do, what do you mean or what are we talking about when we say vulnerability in the context of today's show? Yeah, I mean, I, I looked online to get the exact definition that the internet gives, and it specifically says the quality or state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed, either physically or emotionally. That really doesn't align with what I would <laughs> qualify. So mm -hmm. I guess I would say a slightly different in the sense that a vulnerability is something has the potential to be exploited, whereas the Threat is where it's like likely to be exploited. And I think a lot of people kind of mix those up. So just to recognize they're different. Mm. Hopefully, hopefully that aligns with what you guys believe. Yeah, it, 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 it's fair enough. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess the industry could, well, there's a lot of vulnerability data out there, isn't there, that would help us kind of define what a, what a vulnerability is. So maybe we should look at it from that angle. Where does vulnerability data uh, come from? Do, do security products that help us manage vulnerabilities all use the same vulnerability data? So there's kind of a common industry recognition of what uh, vulnerabilities are? Yeah, I mean, the typical well-known, I guess most well-known is common vulnerability scoring system, um, which is brilliant because it's open source and it has the ability to classify security vulnerabilities. 
I think the hard bit there is a lot of people get this score and don't know what it means. So I guess in my in my mind, vulnerability data comes from a variety of places. Like if you look at um, different vendors and how uh, you know they pick up vulnerabilities uh, within your network. Sometimes uh, they're identified uh, because they're already known. Sometimes they're identified through their behavior. But I think really, where does vulnerability data come from? Well, of course, there's that common vulnerability scoring system or CVSS, which again is open source. Probably heard of it. Everybody has really. Um, And it's a way to classify security vulnerabilities. Um, It's got a couple different um, ways to do it. Uh, You can Google it, really. Um, And I think we talk about it later. But essentially, um, it's a great open source tool that kind of prioritizes how severe uh, a vulnerability is. Whereas where do these vulnerabilities come from, if that's kind of more what you're asking? It's kind of multiple places. I mean, software and hardware companies, they have to review their own products. They have to continually test it. Um, And theoretically, if they've got it down pat and good to go, they should be able to identify issues on their own stuff. But also organizations have bug bounties and they have external people disclosing to the vendor. And then, you know, things that happen through instance. Um, But I think really this data or whatever that comes is really just through trial and error. (laughs) Yeah, right. A lot, as you said, bug bounties, people hunting things down, people finding it, people that make their living out of uh, digging through code and discovering vulnerabilities or running a battery of tests that expose things. Um, And and a lot of that, as you said, end up in in CVSS, the Common Vulnerability Scoring System. If I'm uh, an, an enterprise, let's say, and I am investing in a security product to help me with my vulnerability management, and they're all using CVSS as a you know part of the detection database. How do I pick? I mean, aren't they all about the same? These security products. Is there anything that really differentiates them that I should be looking for? So I'm going to say something really silly that you might think, but I think the differentiation. I'm going to pretend that's a word. I don't know if it is, but really is in the user experience. So I've used quite a few vulnerability management and vulnerability scanning softwares, paid and free open source solutions. And the ones that really stand out to me are the ones that work for not just the tech. And the reason is because security at an organization, at an enterprise is not just the IT or cybersecurity team. It's also the compliance uh, team. It's also the legal team. It's also the senior leadership and the board members and everybody kind of has to have a say in it. So whilst, yes, it's important that, you know, it's an authenticated scan to limit the um, false positives, it's a maintained solution that you know when there's something new they update it of course but also if it's not going to work or if it requires such excessive amounts of training and it's so confusing it's not going to be useful either Um, and I think really the thing that's going to set it apart is something that's built to incorporate 
everyone that needs to work on it. So there's one tool that I'm thinking of specifically, but um, you can have different types of logins and people that are in compliance, for example, they have to work closely with the text for dealing with the exceptions. Um, and so when they log in, it's not this confusing technical view. It's just looking at what exactly uh, they need to work on. So it kind of just says, hey, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of jargon and whatnot. But all you need to focus on are these three focus areas, and that will make you much more secure or perhaps alleviate some of the vulnerabilities? Yeah, I mean, um, like the one I'm specifically thinking, like uh, when you uh, – one of our uh, – a while ago, I had a client where um, they were using – uh, Citrix of UDIs and they had the golden image and then you know they had all these other controls and on the golden image they had a piece of software that had a known issue but the way they mitigated that were through you know other compensating controls and um, they had to have this specific thing set up they couldn't get around it but they did mitigate it through other ways and so vulnerability software would raise it as an issue because not only is an issue but it's affecting every single desktop essentially in the organization uh, we obviously it's virtual desktop but still you know a lot of instances um and so in the software you can go in and say oh this is an exception this is um, why it's uh, not uh, going to be an issue at this point and then this is the expiry date for when we need to review it again and so the compliance officer she could log in check oh yeah this is true we talked about this in our discussion i'm happy to accept this risk they've mitigated it and it's been approved so i'm going to sign this off for the next three months or however long we need to review it and it was so simple for her and so simple for the tech team that at the end the reports they were getting were actually accurate and not just highlighting i don't know how many 600 vulnerabilities when you know or 600 uh, instances of a vulnerability when it didn't need to be highlighted, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we we all love getting the email with like <laughs> six hundred things you don't care about, and how do you how do you get rid of that alert? You just block the email. That's usually the fastest <laughs> way to get alert to go away. But but actually, as you're talking through this, I, I kind of wanted to. Uh, in my mind, I'm kind of framing this idea that there's no one tool that you can invest in that would kind of solve all these problems. You know, maybe one is looking at that vulnerability or that issue. You're talking about the golden image. Maybe others then are looking at different parts of the surface area, the landscape, such as operating systems and applications. Is my posit, if you will, is that the reality of the situation? Or should you? is there just one tool that kind of does everything? And I don't know if you could expand on that thought a bit. It'd be great. So have you ever seen the original Shrek? I mean, mm -hmm. yes, and, and I have onions. I have layers like an onion, so yes. 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 <laughs> so in my opinion, whilst I, you know, it's probably not cool anymore to call it an onion, but let's say it's something that is layered. Cake. I don't really like cake that much. Oh. Um, I know I shouldn't say that because I'm in the UK, but I'm not. Lasagna has layers. That's true, but I feel like they're really fun. How about, how about um, Brussels sprouts? I love Brussels sprouts. So we'll say security is like a Brussels sprout. <laughs> you need the different layers. And um, the solutions, they're all going to really focus on one piece because I, I think one of my friends said this today about, um, you know, 
if it's vast, it's not deep. And the reality is the software, it focuses on one thing. It does one thing really, really good, maybe two things, whatever, but it's not going to cover everything. And you need multiple layers, even if it kind of like one covers like point X and the other one covers a bit of point X and more of point Y, you know, like it's important to layer on those controls because at the end of the day, nothing is perfect. I mean, my ferrets are quite brilliant and I would say they're perfect, but you know, other than that, um, no solution is perfect. No software is perfect. And so if somebody's able to bypass one thing, you know, you've got multiple controls in there to kind of continue on and keep it more, I guess, safe. Yeah, that's word safe. <laughs> mm. You know where I thought you were going with that Brussels sprout analogy? I mean, I knew layers, right, because that was the context. But then I was thinking... Security is like a Brussels sprout. It's 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 really bitter and hard to swallow. Something like that. <laughs> I thought maybe we were going in that direction. Okay, um, uh, serious question. Uh, false positives. With vulnerability scanners, do we have a lot of false positives to contend with? So, yes and no. I have seen it where you've got the best, sexiest software or hardware, whatever solution, and it's absolutely useless because it's not been configured properly. It's not been, like specifically set the triggers properly and it is so overwhelming that yeah not only is there false positives you have no idea what the difference is between the false and the reality because the team isn't trained to identify it and therefore they've not narrowed the scope so yes in the nightmare of cyber security that is possible and i have seen it a lot um however there is light at the end of the tunnel and if you as the organization you know invest into your team and make sure they have the skills to be able to manage this software and actually embed it properly and define the triggers properly, it's going to cut down quite a bit on these false positives and actually be a lot more effective. Because as you said earlier, otherwise people are just going to block the alerts. One thing I've been focusing on quite a bit that I'd love to get your take on, Zoe, is uh, zero days. You know, I, I think historically the way that I've been dealing with it kind of on the IT practitioner, you know, ops person that just wants the, hey, focus on these three things. And that's what you all have to deal with. Uh, historically, that's been kind of fingerprint and, and signature based. And now I'm seeing a lot more around detecting anomalies and uh, anomalies rather and using machine learning. And I don't know, where's the state of these zero days and what are actually effective ways to detect or maybe remediate these things? Yeah, I mean, I get a lot of questions on zero days. And my answer often is, have you dealt with the 200 days yet? However, because ah, okay. <laughs> that's usually what gets the organization. But in the sense that pretend that we've got our patch management in, in good, uh, good control, we've got everything, you know, kind of running smoothly. And now it's time to deal with the zero days. Um, I guess... First, I would define what a zero day is somebody because a lot of organizations think it's a really, really cool word and they don't know what it means. But after we get past that, there's a lot of tools around understanding behavior based. So because traditionally things like virus scanners, whatever, you know, they used to be quite signature based and then they've moved into the behavioral based. And um, obviously with uh, machine learning and AI, whichever way you define those, because I've heard them used interchangeably, which is not accurate, but that's okay. The reality is, you know, they're, they're recognizing what's normal. They're recognizing what is expected behavior by your employees, by your software, by your networks. And then when something different happens, 
that's how they can identify where there's a potential zero day or a potential issue. It's the anomaly based. And whilst zero days can bypass controls and can theoretically go undetected, you should be able to notice the anomalous activities on your network. And um, my background being in network security, network architecture, um, I think the network is super sexy and it's like the most important part of our building our technical environment for security, never mind the human-based. But I think that a lot of people don't realize the benefit that knowing where your packets are going is actually going to make a huge security benefit because I think a lot of times networks are designed just to work. And if it doesn't work, that's when the network people are, are talked to. But outside of that, nobody really sees the benefit versus if we actually understand what's going on and what's expected and limiting communication where it's not needed, then we'll be able to detect these anomalies very quickly. Well, theoretically. That actually dovetails into another question I have, which is about external versus internal vulnerability scanning. So I've been with some organizations and their emphasis is on external network connectivity that faces the public internet, all kinds of bad, horrible things that come in from there. So we're going to worry about vulnerability scans that scan that way and focus on external. But I've also worked with some shops that care a lot about internal and, you know, the the nougaty center of the network, if you will, that doesn't have a hardened exterior because more or less it's a trusted zone. And we kind of know that's an old broken way of thinking, but I just wanted to get your take on that, Zoe. When you're working with uh, customers, do you, is it case by case or kind of globally, do you say external and internal vulnerability scanning? Obviously I like both. I mean, why wouldn't I? Um, but um, I do see what you're saying. A lot of times I get either only internal, either only external, which on one side, I don't really understand. On the other side, I find it quite interesting who prioritizes which, um, because they, they have very different reasons. Uh, but I won't get into that. But essentially, in my point of view, I say, you know, the external makes sense. People see the internet as this dirty place that has all these malicious actors. I mean, if we look at how the internet was made, it was designed... Um, to be a trusted connection between trusted entities, you know, universities, governments, army, medical, etc. Um, and so it wasn't really designed to limit, it was designed to communicate, to connect. And so, yes, there's a lot of issues out there. There's a lot of scary things that happen. But if you think about it in this sense, if that's how the internet was designed, how was your internal network designed? It was designed to connect. It was designed as a trusted environment. It was designed, you know, to expect good and, you know, useful activities, not malicious. But on the other side, we're human. So a lot of times issues arise because of human error. Uh, we do have the possibility of uh, malicious actors on our internal network, not just malicious people in the sense of like cyber criminals, but also disgruntled employees, bad leavers, you know, so on and so forth. Um, or somebody, as I said, you know, breaks into your network and then yay, has internal access. So I think the benefit is both. Um, and the reason and the way I explain it is, you know, kind of going back is I talk about how, the external network has a bunch of untrusted people, yeah, but the internal network has the same. Um, 
theoretically, the um, percentage of malicious actors should be lower on the internal network. But just the same, you know, you need to understand that we can accidentally cause outages. We can accidentally install something that's malicious and traverses the network. And if the default is to just allow all traffic, you're going to run into issue when you install, when somebody accidentally installs something like uh, ransomware, for example, um, versus if you design it with security and privacy by design, you know, you're following the principles of least privilege, you're following the principles of segregation so that, you know, you're not accessing stuff you're not supposed to access. And actually, that's, again, making the network work for your business in a security um, way. You highlighted that in a way that I had not thought about before, which is the human element that can bring horrible things to the inside of your trusted network. I've usually thought about it in the standpoint of, you know, malware, inevitably, you're going to get hit and, and, and you don't want an unprotected uh, zone for that malware to gallop through. You you want to begin tightening that down, but the way it gets in there, that human aspect, is something you've highlighted that I think is really important. Thanks for bringing that up. And I would up. like to add. I would like to add is um, I'm not just saying users are the weakest link. I'm not blaming users. I'm just admitting that we're human. I've seen instances where security professionals infected their own computer and didn't recognize it right away. I've seen penetration testers go to a client site and realize that their device is infected and have to go home. Uh, like it's not just the everyday user that just doesn't understand it. We're human, we make mistakes and it's 100% possible. There's like one more question, just as we're, we're getting set up on vulnerability management here, that, that I want to ask you. We rely a lot on software and a lot on tools to help us with this. But would let, let's say I hired you, Zoe, a trained security pro to come into my network. Would you find vulnerabilities that my software scanning tools would not? Potentially. I mean, if it's a massive, massive organization, yes, tools are going to be overall more effective. However, um, humans are actually better at recognizing unusual activity, especially in their daily roles. And experienced professionals can identify unusual vulnerabilities in organizations because the software is only going to be as effective as we configure it to be. It's going to recognize what's normal versus unusual activity. Um, the triggers we're going to set and the thresholds, they're only going to work if they're the right value. And remember, if it's a malicious actor, they're, they're actively trying to be silent or not actually trigger anything, especially in highly sophisticated attacks. Um, so we can't protect across, against everything in the security tools. So I would say, actually, it is possible a security person could identify vulnerability that scanning tools wouldn't or even, even be on their you know, radar. However, I do think overall in a massive organization, it's not going to be effective to have you know, one person threat hunting over and over again. It's going to be more effective to have the automation, especially in massive environments, and then also have you know, some actual... Uh, trained experts on that topic and I mean that's a pretty pretty good skill pretty brilliant skill but it's actually quite um it's quite tailored to um there's certain people that do it better than others I would say so not every security expert people that actually know what they're looking for
You know, that layered defense and depth approach, it doesn't disappear when it comes to monitoring and assessing and just really like securing your technical investments and, and the user experience. Let's not forget that as well. And I guess we should all make sure to be the Brussels sprout uh, when it comes to tackling security concerns. But, but also don't forget those overly complicated tools and things that don't focus on the experience, they can largely end up being useless. You know, just big paperweights that cost money because in some cases they can't deliver the outcomes that you and your team can act upon. So, so weigh that in your mind as well. Ethan, what stood up for you? Well, just sort of a, a side note was about the UI being a differentiator between a lot of these vulnerability management software platforms. They're all doing roughly the same thing. And so it isn't that one's going to detect a vulnerability that another one isn't, and you better pick the right one. You know, sometimes it just comes down to how usable is the thing? And is it usable for all the different kinds of people within your organization that need to use the platform? If it's usable, the UI is good, gives you good reporting intel, it's got a good interface where you can see what the vulnerabilities are and how they're being managed. That's a solution that uh, maybe is going to win versus other solutions you might evaluate where the UI is kind of terrible. Just a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, NetRounds. NetRounds software actively tests and verifies that your network services are working like you expect them to. NetRounds uses synthetic testing to get real-time, end-to-end metrics from the data plane so you can see exactly how an application or service is running. Unlike passive monitoring tools such as SNMP, Syslog, or Probes, NetRounds provides active assurance that you're meeting SLAs for end users and customers. With active testing, you get immediate visibility into reachability, throughput, VoIP quality, packet loss, retransmissions, and other essential metrics. You can track KPIs, get critical insights for troubleshooting, and test configuration changes and new services to ensure they work like they're supposed to. NetRounds uses lightweight software agents that you can deploy in the data center, in the campus, at branch and remote offices, and in the cloud to get end-to-end measurements. A controller lets you manage agents, initiate tests, and tie into automation tool chains to integrate active assurance into your operational processes. To learn more about NetRounds, listen to Heavy Networking Episode 441 and go to netrounds.com slash packetpushers. While you're there, you can download a white paper, read a cheat sheet, and snag a free t-shirt. That's netrounds.com slash packetpushers. And now back to the podcast. All right, I think we've got a better grasp on vulnerabilities and certainly the difference between tools, false positives, zero days, and heck, just Zoe versus tools or Zoe plus tools. I certainly enjoyed that last question from Ethan. Um, now I want to talk about mitigating some of these vulnerabilities and things that are the creepy crawlies. And the first one, I don't know, it's kind of off the wall, but uh, when you're looking to patch to remediate something, something that I've thought about and I'm sure others is like, what patch should I use? The latest release, the bug fix, the hot fix? Or do I need to be more careful and not use the latest because that's going to add a vulnerability uh, without necessarily knowing that? What's your take on it, Zoe? I've worked in quite a few environments where they've got different points of when they install things. So quite often, a lot of my clients, they they have um, a week. So they wait a week after a uh, update is uh, released. And the reason they do that is because in that first week, they find out all the issues that's bad. <laughs> You're definitely uh, like you're definitely vibing on the thing that most people feel is like, I don't want to be that first person to deploy <laughs> mm-hmm. the code. Yep. Let everyone else kind of beta test that for me. And it's yeah, like exactly. that spot discussion is so difficult. So I've also seen a lot of organizations that have much, much higher risk to 
installing patches right away like they need to uh, and so the way they do that is they actually roll it out to a select group of people that they know can identify if it's an actual issue with the patch or if it's something else like the more technical um, and in that case you know they're they're rolling it out right away they're testing it uh, with all their existing internal tools and software and then rolling it out to the rest of the people as soon as they feel comfortable to do so Overall, in like a massive organization, there is that risk. So I, I, I hate to say, well, this is the right way to do it. It's that awful, awful consultant talk where it's, oh, well, it depends. <laughs> the reality is, you know, you're going to roll out software. It's going to have an issue probably. Um, nothing is perfect. Computers seem to hate us even though we built them. And um it does cause problems, especially if there's this type of software that you have to have available all the time. So my advice generally is to have, if possible, to have a, a testing environment because that allows you to have all the software that's vital, vital to business operations and business con continuity. And therefore, you install that patch, see if it works. However, um, in environments that you know they can wait that week, maybe consider waiting that week but talk to the people that handle um the technical side and the people that handle the risk and make sure it's something you can accept because if it's a vital security update you might not want to wait versus something that's not actually security related you can consider you know it's it's, it's a case-by-case -case sort of consideration but the other side of it is, and the big thing that I think a lot of people don't realize, is as soon as you install an update, you're changing the landscape. And actually, you can be introducing more vulnerabilities. You might not even realize. And so from my point of view, I think talking to the techs, deciding on what works for your organization talking to senior leadership or the board and understanding, you know, because they're responsible for it, they need to sign off on it but understand the risks so i think whilst you want to install as soon as possible you have to figure out what's reasonable for your organization and last point here being as my background in networking i know i keep bringing this up but there is a reason um so on for example um i've worked a lot with cisco uh, routers and switches and that and the biggest thing i train new people on is i say explicitly write every control even if it's a default that you want on or you want off you have to explicitly write it because when you install some updates they can reset those controls and something that's a default off in version one can be default on in version two. So just be very mindful of what your configuration management looks like. What is what is existing in your configurations? Are you confident that it's not going to change settings? And are you confident it's not going to um, cause issues for your business continuity? Um, and if that's all good to go, then yeah, you can install it. That was more like a presentation. <laughs> one question and... <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Off she went on uh, how to determine whether or not to install. Well, okay. So th there's one one big question. Actually, we could uh, element of that answer is so we could dive into a little bit more, which is risk. How do I decide what's uh, a big, important, horrible, oh my gosh, kind of risk that I must deal with versus something that's like, eh, I can leave it around. The risk to me is minimal. How do I make that judgment call? Well, 
To make that judgment call, I would say you probably need to know what your network looks like. You need to know what your environment is like. And you need to know from the top, like senior level or the board, you need to know what they define success as. And you need to have what the tech team defines what success is. And you need to, you know, put them together. Now, when you say the board, you mean like the business stakeholders who care about a particular app? Business stakeholders that care about the business. Yep. Also, yeah, I guess a particular app, yeah. But it depends on what the structure is. But basically the people that sign the check, those people, what do they define as success? What do the techs define as success? And then look at, okay, well, if if you can figure out what the CVSS co- um, score is, great. Um, now, you know, what are your policies and pre- procedures? What do you have that's a mitigating control in place? You know, what's your threat map? What's the likelihood of this causing an issue in your organization? And can you, um, can you patch it? Can you fix it? Sometimes you can't. And in that case, what can you do um, outside of installing that update? What can you do to fix it? Um, I have seen in some cases, organizations say, okay, well, we can't fix this at the moment. However, we can put this compensating control in place until we're allowed to roll this out or until we're able to solve this issue that causes with our existing software or something like that. You, you've said mitigating controls and compensating controls a few times here, but I, I gotta, I've been in a few environments where it's like, okay, we, we wrote down to make the auditor happy, this compensating <laughs> control, and it's all just bullcrap. You know, we know that, uh, yeah, we put an access list in or something lame that doesn't really fix the problem. I mean, are you a believer in compensating controls, mitigating controls? Is that a real solution, do you think? So um, you made me laugh really hard because I know exactly what you're talking about. I have audited many companies and I've gone and say, what do you have? And they're like, oh, we have, you know, people wear badges. So we know that they're allowed in the building. So it doesn't matter if our, you know, printers are insecure. You know, like little funny compensating controls that are not compensating. So I definitely know what you're talking about. Um, I believe properly done and properly understood compensating controls can be effective. We can create mitigations that, you know, decrease the threat, uh, sorry, decrease the risk until it's under the acceptable risk of the organization. However, this requires, firstly, that the organization has a definition of what acceptable risk is, because that's actually something a lot of people don't have. Um, An organization has a holistic understanding of the risks. So every department has their own, you know, risk uh, register, IT is included, cybersecurity is included, like they all chat and they all discuss it and they've got that understood. They also need to understand their environment. They need documentation on their environment and they need to review and make sure they don't have shadow IT or at least limit it. And if all of that is sunny and happy and rainbows, then then I would say they're qualified at looking at compensating controls. And the reason I say that is because if they've got so much shadow IT going on and they think they've, you know, covered this angle here and it's okay, maybe, for example, um, I've worked in a casino before. Not that this happened at that client, but just as a random example I thought of, um, certain people that worked with the financials, they didn't have internet access for a good reason, but they, but by default, they didn't have internet access. So 
if our compensation control was because this system has a vulnerability on it that if accessed by the internet, we could be in a lot of trouble. But we're like, actually, it's okay because our compensating control is they don't have internet access from the machines. But shadow IT over here, uh, somebody maybe wants to watch Netflix or wants to watch Prime while they work, which I've seen a lot. Lots of people like that background noise and maybe they they went in they couldn't get approval for internet so they went and they got their own um um you know their own router their own connection somehow magically and because they weren't aware of that that um, external shadow it internet access then their composite control has been invalidated what about if we took all that you've talked about thus far and made it then a conversation around what's going on and servers, workloads, data, et cetera, in the public cloud. Does this conversation change? You know, I guess, it, it, and if so, what, what kind of changes in that conversation? I'd say, I mean, anytime you're moving to the cloud, you do have to be aware of the differences. So if you're going to the public cloud, for example, if you're going to Azure or wherever else, there's many out there, so I'll just use that as an example, um, you have to understand that whilst, you know, the operations, you know, they still have access to certain configurations, they still have access to sorry, certain controls, certain updates. They have to remember at the hardware base, they, you know, they've limited access to the hardware. They don't know who has access to the hardware necessarily. Um, there's potentially there could be other, um, you know, when it comes to uh, renting um, space, you can either rent, you know, the hardware and, you know, and install, you know, dedicated hardware, install what you want and you're good. But in some cases, a lot of cases, uh, you don't have dedicated hardware. And so you have to consider other tenants in there. And what if, you know, one of them has an incident, are you going to be notified? So there are like quite a few additional things. And I think the biggest challenge is a lot of organizations say, okay, I'm going to move to the cloud. But they don't realize that, well, this tech that they have managing it or these techs, you know, they've worked on hardware the entire time. So for them to then change their mindset and move over to a completely software-based, complete, like they have to log in um, to a portal, you know, they don't get physical access. For some people, it might not be a big deal. But for some people, that's a completely different mindset. That's different. They need the training. So not only do you have to look at, you know, is your team qualified to do that? But what are the actual changes? What is the SLA, uh, service level agreement? If something happens, does the hosting provider need to notify you? And how fast do they need to notify you? And the biggest thing that I always bring up is, okay, what data are you putting in the cloud? Because there is a risk, obviously, that it can, you know, uh, be public. So, what is that risk mean? Like what, what is the biggest, most scariest bit of data you're putting out there and how are you properly protecting it? And is this service provider, this hosting provider, are they qualified to keep that data? Something like um, in the UK or the EU, EU anyway, um, you can't let data leave the EU. So is your hosting provider going to be able to deal with that? Are they going to be able to achieve your regulatory requirements? Are they capable to achieve your availability demands? Yes, if you go with someone like Azure, 
much more likely they'll be able to handle it. But if you go with a smaller company, are they going to be able to do it? And um, are you going to be able to handle it? Deciding what to fix is hard and it involves all parts of the business. It's not a decision for the engineer to make, which is really tempting when you're an engineer. You just be like, oh my gosh, this is vulnerable. We got to deal with this. And then you just want to like go and patch. But you actually need to bring in business stakeholders because the decision isn't one about this thing is broken. I must fix it. It's actually a measurement of risk and risk is complex. And the decision might not be what engineers usually want that fix it knee jerk uh, response that we have. Uh, vulnerability patching is, is uh, it can be a compromise. The engineer brings careful analysis of the problem, presents that in plain speech to those people that are making the decisions that they are properly informed. And I think that's really the, the best and most appropriate engineering role there, uh, assuming you can present that information clearly. It's a communication skill that you got to develop and get all the people on board so that the right decision is made. What was your takeaway, Chris? Yeah, I just like what you said there. You know, risk is complex. I, I guess it wouldn't be if you have infinite money, but none of us do. Uh, so one thing that stood out for me was the question, what are your acceptable risks? And it kind of was a good head scratcher. I think it's a good question to which you, you should have an answer. And like any good design, you have to have knowledge on the risks involved, uh, which ones you can design around, or which ones you just have to accept and try to mitigate as much as possible. And those are usually lumped in the assumptions bucket until they become a risk that you can tackle. And I think the advice of getting the stakeholders involved, like what you were alluding to, uh, Ethan, where you're determining their, your surface area, you're documenting what exists today and what the future plans are, it can help make sense as to understanding not only what your security approach and your posture is, but what is your risk posture? What do you what do you know that's out there? What are the unknown unknowns and the known unknowns so that you can tackle those vulnerabilities? All right, so I want to get into fixing these vulnerabilities. We've talked a lot about risk management and figuring out that we have a problem, but now we're at that phase where we want to fix the problem. Question one, if we replace vulnerable code with fresh code, we've patched the system, hooray! But is patching the ultimate fix for a vulnerability in your mind? I would say it's a start. However, as I said before, if you're patching something, if you're changing something, you're changing the landscape. And so you have to go through the regular testing, um, just like, you know, in, in um, secure coating, you know, you, you go through acceptance, system integration, unit testing, but also um, whenever you change a system, if it's highly sensitive data, I always recommend, you know, do a, pen, a penetration test or do a review or, you know, put it through rigorous peer review before publishing, you know, like these things are quite important, but also having your, you know, vulnerability scanner going externally, internally, whatever. Um, so I think making a change, updating, you know, vulnerable code is definitely a difference. It's definitely, you know, positive, but also just make sure you've not introduced issues. Um, you know, if, if the, issue or if the update is causing people not be able to work effectively they're going to probably roll it back so make sure that the users actually like it like that's quite important when it comes to security so so you really alluding to something there closing the loop in other words it's not enough to patch it you need to close the loop that everything is working okay. So, I mean, the most obvious thing would be that the box truly is no longer vulnerable. The vulnerability is gone. But then you're also saying that we need to be thinking about 
did we blow anybody up? Is the app itself still working? In other words, the patch can is a risk factor all its own. Definitely, definitely. What about for testing that code that's been patched onto a you know a box that was formerly vulnerable? You know, there, I would imagine there's a lot of concerns around an API endpoint changing or some kind of backend service being turned off or something like that. You know, it's not really testing that the the code is you know fixed or that the change is at that level. It's more like does the platform get modified or mangled because of this? Is there any recommendations you have around a good good hygiene for testing code that's been deployed on a system that you patched? Yeah, definitely. I mean, going back to what I said earlier, it, it, you do have to go through all the different types of testing. And part of those, you know, regular testing is obviously unit testing, you know, does the code do what you want it to do, but also does it work um, uh, not just with the system, but also the other um, the other parts of the, I'm not a coder, so I always use the wrong terms, but I think people understand. <laughs> But also you do have to test the system. So when you are installing a patch, um, just like you know, when you're installing a patch in your enterprise environment, you have to test it to make sure it's not fudging up any of your existing critical software. But same with, you know, your if you're the developer, you also want to make sure, you know, the systems that you say you support, you're actually supporting. So you've tested it before you've deployed it. Um, but also um, I think I think you have to consider when you have a system that, you know, was vulnerable, you know, you want to validate, make sure that you fixed it, but also there's no um, existing issues or nothing, no one's caused anything before you actually install, you know, more stuff to, you know, test in a safe environment. But um, I don't know, the, the dream, the dream would be you have a testing environment, you have a production environment and you have a development environment. Yeah, that is the dream. <laughs> uh, actually, when you think about the container world, that are often those exist in that environment where there's um, or several different environments where there's testing and so on. It's pretty easy to to make that happen when you're into the container world. But then, when you think about how containers are often not always but often operated, is there any point in patching them, assuming it's kind of a microservices environment? The containers are ephemeral; they're going to come and go over time. Is there a point in patching those or should we just kind of fix the golden image that the container is launched from and then cycle out vulnerable containers over time? All right. So personally, I love the idea of patching in micro-segmentation. Um, you know, it's it's essentially, it's the practice of creating small environments um, then also, you know, limiting down to you know, what's expected and then patching it, that would be awesome. However, <laughs> if your testing environment, uh, you know, you validated this change works with existing updates or whatever. Um, I don't know, it really depends on your, I would say it depends on your situation because if, if you're testing for, you know, I don't know, unit testing, do you need to patch it? I don't think so, because you would also do it in system testing. You would have a system that's patched. So I think it depends on what you're looking for. I mean, again, I don't work in software development, so it might be more effective to talk to somebody that does. I always like to say, well, you know, best practices, but best practice isn't always reality. Um, so I think 
the golden image is expected to be the image that you would be deploying it on. But I also, let's say, if you're spinning it up really quickly, it's expected that that's the version you're going to roll it out on. However, if you're just testing one thing and you're going to test it on the system later, then maybe you don't have to. I think that's more of a developer question. Yeah, I don't know that there's any one right answer here. I mean, my... My brain spun on this for a while, kind of similar to the way your your brain went. And I ended up with, I think I would focus on golden image and making sure that that has been patched and is okay, particularly in a world where the container is uh, spinning up and spinning down, assuming that, that it is spinning up and spinning down in some regular fashion and your, your exposure is minimal it'd be more trouble than it's worth trying to patch containers themselves. Only if you're dealing with long-lived stateful containers would you, would, in my mind, would you really want to focus on that? Otherwise, uh, no. Uh, and I think it sounds like you went through the same mental gymnastics to, uh, to get to that <laughs> conclusion too. Ethan, you're so, so evil. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about, I, how about I take it a different direction? Because Zoe, something you talked about earlier was the stakeholders, uh, the board and, and people mm-hmm. that kind of own these sorts of things. So, I'm looking for some advice. How do you get involved with the business people? You know, I, I, and I know that everyone is part of the business, just like everyone sells and all that kind of jazz. But you've got people that are identified as being part of the business. You've got, you know, you're talking about you're not a developer. How do I talk to the developers, or perhaps the audience we have here? How do I get involved with the operators? So I guess we'll start business and then kind of move into more technical owners of the you know the service or the data that you're trying to secure. Yeah, I mean, you could do what I do, and uh, whenever I join a new company, I'm like, oh, hi, I'm Zoe, and it could be like, you know, the managing partner or somebody in the same grade level as me. I don't know why I do it, but I always seem to find the most important person, and I say hi to them, but I don't realize until after. If you're not like, like, hey, you're a Brussels sprout, is that how you, is that the the icebreaker? (laughs) (laughs) No, you know what? shockingly it's usually I tell them about my ferrets um <laughs> but well um yeah they're good for something but <laughs> but no um I think I think a lot of people get overwhelmed with them being the big cheese or the most important person in the room but they don't realize that well actually every single person is the most important person in the room because without people your business does not exist but if you're still not good at talking to them realize this um a lot of times senior leadership and business people they don't understand cyber security there's this negative connotation with it they're anxious about it and they just want to be told we're secure versus the techs they're like well you can't really be secure so i'm never going to say that um and i just want to you know i just want money for my budget and so the communication gap there is because they're not speaking the same language you know like i said senior i want to be secure developers or techs are like well that's not possible so no um and you have to speak the language that works between both of them which is risk businesses understand risk Cybersecurity is risk-based, so it stands to reason that that's a language that's going to work. Now that they're speaking the same risk, if a tech can explain to business, you know, actually, this vulnerability is very important to pay attention to because of these reasons, the board is going to see, okay, this person knows what they're talking about, they understand the business, they understand what we're expecting, and they've given 
identifying, you know, informative feedback that we can understand and then we can properly address it. The tax seeing, you know, the board is listening to me. They care about security. They value what, you know, content I'm sharing with them and we can make a positive impact. And so that communication gap is bridged. The relationship is benefited and over time there'll be trust built between both of them trust from the tech side saying the board understands and cares trust from the board side saying this tech actually knows what they're talking about they understand the business and they're going to make a difference for us zoe i think that's a good way to uh, to wrap up the, the discussion bringing together the human element and putting all the folks that are in the room and are affected by this um uh, together and having a conversation on a common Using a common vocabulary, something that everybody understands, that's uh, that's pretty crucial to this whole process and something that engineers, I think, can overlook sometimes because we just want to you know, get in there and fix it or whatever. Now, uh, Zoe, you're, you're a social creature. Do you blog? Um, how can people follow you? Tell us all the things. Yes. So I am on Twitter. Uh, I'm available at 5683monkey. Don't ask why. I was 20. I don't know. Um, that is just the handle I went with. Um, I also blog on my personal website, which is Rose Sec. So roses in the flower, sec.com. And I also sometimes blog on my company's website, uh, bringer.com. It's a very pretty name. It actually means bringer of light. Um other than that, I'm quite boring. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, if you if you don't follow Zoe on Twitter, uh, again, that was 5683monkey, correct? Correct. Correct. Um, lots of tweets and retweets that are interesting, especially if you're in the security world. So uh, worth adding her to to your follower list. That would be uh, that would be good stuff. And thanks for being on the show today, Zoe. We uh, we really appreciate that. And uh, our thanks to you for listening to today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach me at EC Banks on Twitter. My blog is EthanCBanks.com, and Chris is at Chris Wall, and his blog is WallNetwork.com. And we Data Knots interview folks like Zoe from all over the IT industry who are trying to do things better. We're breaking down silos pushing the design envelope creating new tech sharing with community and learning and unlearning and improving and asking hard questions we talk to them as they explore the it universe taking us places we haven't already been until then may your server lights blink your vulnerabilities be low risk and your cables be clean